Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I'd like to start just by reading the first of these. This is Luke chapter 10. Uh, both of these gospel accounts are stories of uh, the same woman, Mary. We'll be looking at her example this morning in a moment. As they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would be here with us, that you would guide us, that you would reveal a, a deep truth to us this morning that would be healing, that would be transforming. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, 2014, it was the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War. If you've been here long enough and you've heard enough of my sermons, you know that I'm a little bit of a history buff. And the First World War was a war that I didn't know much about. And I'm the kind of person who can't sleep at night thinking there's a war in history that I don't know much about. And so 2014, it seemed like a golden opportunity to fill the gap in my knowledge I discovered uh, the BBC was making a podcast where they were going day by day through the events of the war. So for the next four years, I could listen in and follow those events basically 100 years later. Now, uh, that was 2014. It's now 2018, which means we are at the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. Unfortunately, my knowledge of the war is basically what it was to begin with because I followed through on that commitment for a couple of days and then forgot all about it, as sometimes happens. But, but there were a few facts that somehow managed to lodge in my brain, and the most surprising of them is not actually a military thing. It's, it's a literary thing. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but... it. it T.S. Eliot's early famous poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, was published in 1917 during the First World War. Now, uh, that poem has always been special to me because I had a professor once who compared me to J. Alfred Prufrock. And I was really flattered because I misunderstood. I thought she was comparing me to T.S. Eliot, who wrote the poem. But no, it was actually to the weird, kind of eccentric character in the poem, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite the compliment that I thought it was. But, but I always had that poem in my mind, special relationship, and it was really shocking to me to realize that that's the year it was published. Because when you read the poem, there are all sorts of little obscure references, literary references, historical, that sort of thing. But, but it's not about the First World War. It doesn't touch on that at all. Like, it has nothing to say about the most important event that was happening in the moment that it was published, arguably one of the most important things that had happened in human history, and T.S. Eliot basically said nothing. 
concerning that. At the time, another writer, the novelist E.M. Forster, uh, the guy who wrote A Passage to India, he read that poem when it first came out, and he said it was heartening to read it in 1917. But as time passed, people saw it a little bit differently. And the fact that that T.S. Eliot had somehow managed to publish a poem in 1917 that said nothing about the, the events of his day, it became a little bit of a problem. So the critics would look back and say, well... Um, you know, Eliot could have done a better job. He could have made more of a protest, more of a statement about what was going on in the world. That would have made it a better poem. And then somebody really surprising came to Eliot's defense. Um, someone you really couldn't accuse of being politically disengaged it was George Orwell, the author of 1984. When he came across this criticism of Eliot, here's what he wrote. He said, the truth is, that in 1917, there was nothing that a thinking and a sensitive person could do except to remain human, if possible, and a gesture of helplessness, even of frivolity, might be the best way of doing that. In those days, there was nothing that a thinking and a sensitive person could do, he says, except to remain human, if possible. We all feel the pressure. We don't live in the midst of a world war, but we do live in interesting times. And, and we feel the pressure of, of, of the question, what are we going to do? What should we do? What are we meant to be doing? What work should we commit ourselves to? Are we doing enough? Are we part of the solution? Are we part of the problem? Are we on the right side of history or on the wrong? I feel it, and I know that you do as well. So many sides calling to you, saying, enlist with us. Join this cause, so many voices, that in the cacophony, the still small voice of Scripture can be drowned out, or at least can be a little more difficult to make out, to understand. But what is that voice saying to us? What is scripture saying to us? I want to suggest one thing that I believe it's saying to us, which is that spiritually speaking, it is always 1917. You are a sensitive and a thinking person. And the best that you can do is to remain human, if possible. I think... Orwell's words resonate with me. There's, there's one issue that, that I would take with him, which is the value that he places on a frivolous and a helpless gesture. I understand why he sees it that way, but I think he's not actually right about seeing the gesture as, as helpless or frivolous. I think he's, he's wrong, but for the right reason. I understand why he thinks this, but I'm going to argue, as, as you'll see, that, that I don't think that part is quite right. There's another thing, though, before we go forward that I just want to uh, put in your mind, just file this away, that it's going to sound as if what you're hearing is an argument for passivity, and that's not what it is. So if it sounds like that, keep listening. Keep listening. I realize that saying your duty, your job, your calling is to remain human sounds like what I'm saying is it's easy. 
There's an easy task that we've been called to. It sounds easy to remain human, but it's not. If I say, you need to remain human, you might say to yourself, well, uh, that's not enough. I've got to do more than that, obviously, because by definition, we are all actually human. Like, all of us are already human. And if all we have to do in this life is to stay human, then it seems as if not much is expected of us. But if you hear it that way, I would suggest it's because we have such an impoverished idea of what humanity is, what it means to be human. We have a really low bar that we've set. Scripture sees being human in a very different kind of way. In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist talks about humanity. He begins in what seem like good Calvinist terms. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? So he's talking about how small and insignificant we are, and that that resonates. But it's important, as people who try to be clear-eyed about human depravity, the reality of human depravity, it's important to realize that, that the doctrine of depravity is not the only thing or even the most important thing that the Bible has to say about humanity. It's actually a qualifier, like a negative qualification of a huge, glorious good. What is man that you are mindful of him? He's nothing. He's insignificant. And yet, the psalmist says, you've elevated him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. To be human in the eyes of the psalmist is definitely not to be something insignificant or worthless. To be human is to be made in the image of God. Unlike any other creature in humanity, it's a glorious thing to bear his imprint. According to our catechism, human beings are made to glorify God. We're made to be worshipers and also to be enjoyers of God forever. It's a high calling to be a worshiper, not only here, but in all of life. Like to make your whole life a life that brings glory and honor to him. A whole life of worship, that's big called as a human being to use all of your gifts to give form to the raw material of God's creation. He made this good world and he put us here as as caretakers, as curators, as makers to give form to it all, to give shape to it that glorifies him. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But above all of that, as human beings, we are made to commune with him. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about that future hope that he has, that face-to-face communion. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. To know God fully, to commune with him face-to-face, to be in his presence in that way, reflecting his glory, that's what human beings were made for. And when you see your humanity... In those terms, then you realize that to remain human is a big thing that most of us are failing at. Most of us are failing at. To remain human, if possible, that if possible is actually a good qualifier that he adds because maybe it's not possible. It's hard to remain human, harder than it looks. Because of our fallenness, because of that depravity, uh, we do mostly fail. 
at remaining human, though not for lack of trying. We see that we're in a broken world. We see that things are falling apart, that it's not as it was meant to be. And so naturally, we try to fix it. We try to do something about it, to put things back the way that they were meant to be. But maybe we become focused on the wrong problem. Instead of fixing the world, maybe the most we can hope to do is remain human, if possible. And that's why I think the example of Mary is so interesting. We learn about this woman through several glimpses, stories that are told to us in the gospel, stories that need a little bit of unpacking in order to understand their significance, stories which I will admit to you freely, um, having grown up in church and heard these stories again and again, I'm not sure I ever really understood them. I'm not sure I took away from them what I was meant to. I'm going to suggest to you that what makes Mary so interesting is that when everyone around her, for the best of intentions, is trying to fix the world, Mary is focused on remaining human. She sees the situation differently. In the text that we read just a moment ago in Luke chapter 10, this is the the famous introduction of Martha and Mary And uh, like most of these stories that we hear so often in Scripture, it's hard to read them without supplying the standard interpretation as you do it. There's a way of reading this story that's very familiar to us. And the character in in Luke's account that that jumps out isn't actually Mary so much as it is Martha, her sister. Martha is the one who who does the action here. Uh, Mary's not doing anything. Mary's just being idle just sitting at the feet of Jesus, not doing anything. Martha's the one who's doing all the work. And immediately you read the story and you're like, wait a second, I know some Marthas. I know some people who are like this. Uh, They're the people that, like in any social situation, they bring this kind of nervous energy. They're always creating this, this work around the periphery, always letting you know they're there by how busy they are and, and making things really awkward, creating work for themselves. It doesn't need to be done, and then judging you for not helping them and doing the busy work that they've created. And so Jesus, when when this woman comes to him and tries to enforce her manufactured rules on everybody else, Jesus gives her an admonition that that comes straight out of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He basically says to her, Mary, you got to keep the main thing the main thing. You're focusing on all this unimportant stuff, and you need a laser beam focus on what really matters here. You're just creating busy work, unimportant stuff, and it's blinding you to what's really important. That's the way I always understood Martha, always understood the story and, and what Jesus was saying. But that reading of the story really depends on an assumption, that the work that Martha is doing is unimportant, that it's unnecessary, that it's work she's invented for herself. And I'm going to suggest that it is an unsustainable assumption if you're paying attention to what this woman is actually doing. She's serving. She's engaged in the work of hospitality. Martha is doing the work that makes it possible for other people to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. If you didn't have a person like Martha present to do that, then none of the rest of it could happen. 
without that gift of hospitality and that willingness that she has to go to work to serve other people, this event would not be taking place. If you were present and you had a drink in your hand, it was because Martha put it there. If you had a seat to sit in, it was because Martha had moved the chairs around for you. She was doing important work. And yet, when Jesus spoke to her, and he wasn't on her side, it's a more difficult lesson than it may seem. What he's condemning here is not a focus on unnecessary busy work. It's something else. He's not saying, set aside unnecessary work and pay attention to me. He's saying something much harder, which is set aside necessary work. Neglect what is essential in order to focus on what is more essential, even more valuable than the valuable thing that is occupying you. Do you see the difference? What Jesus is pointing to is a greater good, not than all of the bad things that preoccupy us, but a greater good than the good things that we devote ourselves to. When Martha calls Mary out, she goes to Jesus. She has every reason to believe that Jesus will side with her because she knows that what she's doing is good. She has the moral high ground. You're supposed to serve other people. We say this all the time. If you want to serve Jesus, like don't do it through some empty religious gesture. You can serve Jesus by serving other people because they're made in his image. That's exactly what Martha is doing. And yet... What Mary is doing is, is somehow greater. When you focus on remaining human, you will be accused of neglecting your moral duty. There will be people who see what you're doing and will not understand the goodness of it. When you focus on remaining human, you will have to sacrifice good things. Not just bad things, but good things. Necessary things in order to devote yourself to a greater good. There's another story about Mary that I want to look at. This one is in Matthew 26. And this one we get multiple accounts of. Uh, John tells the same story in John chapter 12. And it's actually from John that we learn that the woman in this story is the same as the one that we've just been reading about. It's the same Mary. Matthew doesn't mention her name, so we wouldn't know that just from Matthew's account. But the reason... We want to look at Matthew's account as John's account also gives us the role that Judas plays in the condemnation of Mary. And, and I think it's easy to read John's version and, and forget that Judas isn't alone, that everybody feels the way that Judas does. Judas's motives may be bad, but everybody agrees with him. Everybody is united with him in this condemnation. So let's take a look at that. That's uh, Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. And when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, 
but you will not always have me. We'll stop there. The disciples judge and condemn Mary's actions. But like Martha, I think they do it for the right reasons. Like they, they believe that they're justified, that they have the moral high ground, that they're actually seeing this ignorant woman doing something that if she had paid more attention to Jesus, she would know is not going to be pleasing to him. Because Jesus thinks that to care for the poor is more important than to perfume the body. Like Jesus isn't going around saying, hey, serve the poor if you can, but first spray on some cologne and smell good while you're doing it. Of course not. That would be frivolous. And Jesus is anything but frivolous. In fact, Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew 19 when he's advising this rich young ruler, this man who claims to have kept the law from his youth, and Jesus says, great, now all you need to do is sell all that you have and give the money to the poor. So the disciples, when they see Mary's gesture, they're actually applying a principle Jesus has taught them. This woman has taken this precious thing that she had, and instead of selling it and giving the proceeds to the poor, as Jesus has advised people to do, instead she pours it on him. And the thing is, it may be nice now, but tomorrow Jesus is going to smell like he always does. Right? This is so temporary. It means nothing. It changes nothing. It's an empty gesture. As so many beautiful things seem empty to us. The disciples know that, that this is not right, and they're indignant about it. They're grumbling about what's going on. And, and the thing about it is, these grumblings are, are grumblings we can relate to. Right? These are not uh, first-century feelings that, that are no longer part of our discourse. This is what happens in every church whenever the question of like building a building comes up. There's always going to be somebody who's going to say, we need to build the most utilitarian box known to man that can stuff the maximum number of people in like cordwood. And any money we waste on anything to make it, quote, beautiful, that's frivolous. It's nothing. Why would we throw money away on some useless gesture like that? And the thing is, when people say things like that, they feel that they have the moral high ground, that they're actually saying what Jesus would want them to say, and, and it's, it's hard to argue with that. My guess is that most of us, if the disciples were, were complaining in this way, most of us would be like, yeah, I see your point. That totally was the wrong thing for this woman to do. And yet Jesus doesn't see it that way. Like Jesus values what she does. Jesus not only does that, but he says something really challenging, really difficult. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The poor you will have with you always. I mean, it sounds like a really frivolous thing for Jesus to be saying. Like for Jesus to say, look, hey, you know, the poor, that's a, that's a big problem, but it's a fallen world, and we're never going to fix the poor problem, so... Anointing me with, with, with this, this sweet-smelling oil is probably the best use of these resources because you're never going to fix that other thing. You shouldn't even try. Let, wait on me. I'll fix it at the end of time. You don't need to worry about that. 
But obviously that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 19 and throughout the Gospels that Jesus values the poor. Jesus cares for the poor more than the disciples who are criticizing him for not feeding the poor with these proceeds. So clearly he's not saying these words to neglect the poor. So why is he saying these things? What is the point if not that? And what Jesus is saying is, honoring me is more valuable than serving the poor. That sounds horrible. That sounds horrible. That's a bad thing to say. Honoring Jesus is more valuable than serving the poor? That would not be a good mission statement for a church, right? I mean, if people start listening to the, the, the podcast of this sermon and they hear those words, I mean, this is not the sort of thing you want to get out. It sounds so wrong. But when you know what Jesus isn't saying when he says those words, it sounds different. Jesus, who cares for the poor, Jesus, who wants you to see your religious obligation to him as being something that you must fulfill through your care for the poor, that same Jesus who cares more deeply for the poor than you ever have and ever will says that to honor me is more valuable than that. That doesn't diminish the value of serving the poor. It magnifies the value of honoring Christ. And that's why it's difficult, because we just don't value him the way that we should. So that to us, this act of worship, this beautiful thing that Mary does to Jesus, to us, it's incomprehensible as it was to the disciples, because we don't see his value the way that she did. Mary demonstrates to us the way to remain human. The way to remain human is to attend to Christ. To attend to Christ. To do this, there's a need for stillness. We sing this psalm, Psalm 46, often here at Grace. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. But if you read the whole psalm, this is a very pyrotechnic psalm. Before you get to the stillness, there's a lot of conflict, a lot of violence. Jesus, God, brings calmness. He brings stillness by by making the striving cease. And then says, be still and know. And notice the order, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Stillness, knowledge, worship. From stillness to knowledge, from knowledge to worship. In both of the gospel accounts of Mary, we see Mary condemned by the faithful, by people who follow Jesus religiously. And yet they condemn her in the first instance because she's doing nothing when she should be doing something in the second instance because what she's doing is all wrong and makes no sense. They believe, as we often do, that they have the moral high ground until Jesus changes the ground beneath their feet and shows them that that Mary sees something that they don't because Mary has done something that they haven't. They know how to be busy for the cause, but they struggle to be still and to know. 
Mary is not passive. It may seem to Martha that she's doing nothing, that she's merely idle, but that's not what's going on. Mary is still in the presence of Christ, and then she knows what to do. She exalts Christ in a way that no one ever would if they hadn't first been still and attended to him. It's important for us not to confuse stillness with idleness. The voices around us are always saying to us, if you don't do what I'm doing, if you don't enlist in my cause, then you're on the sidelines. Then you're part of the problem. It's either my way or no way at all. It's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. There's no virtue in being zealous to fight the wrong fights. There's no virtue in fighting the right fights the wrong way. Be still and know. Not everything that appears to be idleness really is. There are a lot of things that look idle but aren't. Thinking, for example. Thinking. Ever tried to think? It's not easy. To actually focus your mind. To, to follow through on those ideas. To develop ideas is hard. It takes effort to think. But it doesn't look like it. Like you never walk up to someone who's thinking and say, wow, that is an effort, right? You see someone lost in thought and you're like, man, you need to like do something. You're basically not paying attention. Uh, praying is another example of something that, that from the outside looks like nothing. You see people praying, it looks like they're sleeping. It can be hard to tell the difference between sleeping and praying sometimes from the outside, Right? And of course, we can admit sometimes there is no difference at all for, for us. But uh, so funny to me, prayer has become for us a synonym of doing nothing. Like if something terrible happens and you say to someone, I will pray for you, you're basically saying, I will do nothing for you. And I'm just letting you know in, in religious language that, that I will be indifferent to your sufferings because I will merely pray and will do nothing. It's strange the way we talk about prayer, as if it's nothing. And yet, if you ask Christians, what is the difficult thing? What is the most difficult part of your Christian life? Most people will tell you the thing I struggle with the most is prayer. I don't know how to do it. I'm not sure when I'm doing it right or wrong. It's hard for me to do it for any length of time. And yet it looks so easy. It looks like idleness, and yet no one seems to be able to do it. What's going on? Well, appearances are deceiving. Stillness may look like idleness, but it's far from idle. Another thing that looks like idleness is listening. Listening. When people listen, it looks like they're doing nothing, and yet listening can be one of the most difficult things you're ever called on to do. I'm going to tell a story about David Geyer because he's out of the country. There's nothing he can do. Um, A few years ago, during Advent, uh, David had had this dream of sharing this piece of music with a group of people and kind of walking through it. And, and we started talking, and I was very open to that because I wanted to understand music, but I didn't. And it seemed like a great opportunity. So over the course of Advent, probably 2014, um, we met in our living room with a group of people, and David led us through this piece of music. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea how awkward it was going to be. Um, because most of us don't listen to music anymore. Like, you think that you do. You're like, I listen to music all the time, but, but you don't listen to it. It's in the background. 
Like it's augmenting whatever experience you're having, but you're not paying attention to it. You're not attending to it. And suddenly to have a piece of music played and have to attend to it is a little bit weird. Like we were sitting in a circle in, in the living room and he would play this music and I'm like, where am I supposed to look? Because if I just look at the other people around me, that's weird. And, and, and uh, what do I do with my hands? Like what is the proper listening posture for the hands? I didn't know. And so all of us were sort of shuffling uncomfortably and, and, and thinking, okay, he's going to play a moment or two of the music and then he's going to talk, but that's not it. He was like playing long stretches of music for us just to listen to. Oh, and it was, it was so strange. It was so alien to us, this kind of listening. Now, the piece that he was playing for us didn't make it any easier. It was by a French composer, Olivier Messiaen. I'm going to butcher the, the French here, but it's Vingt regards sur l'enfant Jésus. Uh, Twenty regards or glances or perspectives on the infant Jesus, on baby Jesus. So 20 piano pieces, and each one is a different angle, a different consideration of the birth of Christ. And they're very challenging to play. Uh, it, it takes a... a a virtuoso of the piano to be able to play these. And as a result, performances are, are relatively rare. And, and I can understand why. Because when we listened to it for the first time, I just had no clue what I was hearing. It, it was incomprehensible. Um, and then afterwards, David asked, well, what did you think about that? How did it make you feel? And he said there were no wrong answers, but I didn't believe that. Um, and so I had to admit I was always listening to the music. What it made me think was that I had been put inside one of those brass-helmeted Victorian diving suits and sent to the bottom of the deepest pit in the ocean. And, and as the, the music played, I could feel the pressure building on me more and more, like crushing me. And, 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 and that sense of oppression and depth was what I felt when I was listening to a piece written to describe the gaze of the Father as he contemplates from eternity the birth of Christ. And you're thinking, that surely wasn't the way he felt. <laughs> and the funny thing is, so the way David does this is he lets you tell you what, what you felt when you heard it, and then he's like, good, he doesn't judge. He says, let's listen again. And so we listen again. And then we talk a little bit, and he hears what I say, and he says, hmm, let's listen again. And we keep doing this over and over again, listening over and over to this music, and something happens. I start hearing it differently. I start sensing some of what this music is about, and this world opens up to me. A, a different vocabulary, Messiaen, he was obsessed with bird song. He thought birds were like the closest thing we have to like the, the songs of angels glorifying God. And so he worked this idea into his music and he invents a sort of vocabulary all his own so that it's very alien at first. But once you listen to it over and over again, you start to get it. And David made us listen over and over until I heard the love of the father for the son. But it wasn't accessible immediately. It didn't happen all at once. First, we had to learn to listen. We had to be still. We had to immerse ourselves into it. And only when we were deep inside that music could we really hear what it was saying. Messiaen, he wrote that piece in 1944, the year before the Second World War ended. 
If you don't know much about the First World War, one of the reasons is the Second World War. Because after having that horrible, worst conflict of human history, we decided to do it again, only worse. The Second World War, Hitler, the Nazis, all of that stuff. After that, it was hard to look back at trench warfare as anything but quaint. 1944, Olivier Messiaen writes this work and he says nothing about what's going on in the world. No reference to the great evil that is being perpetrated in his day. Nothing, not even a shred of protest, of pushback against Hitler and, and, and the Nazi regime. Nothing. What a useless frivolous gesture in those days 1944 to devote yourself to writing piano pieces about baby Jesus when there's real stuff going on in the world around you how could he do such a thing how could he do it I think maybe Messiah understood something that we don't understood that in the times he was living in, just like in the times Eliot was living in, and in the times that we are always living in, there is one thing necessary, above everything else, no matter how necessary it is, and that is to glimpse Christ, to focus on Christ, to regard him, to attend to him. He doesn't ignore what's happening. He answers what's happening, the deeper gaze at Jesus Christ. If you want to remain human, look to Christ. Jesus is and has remained fully human. He is the best example we have of what it means to be human. As Christians, when we desire to be conformed to his image in sanctification, what we're saying is, Jesus, make us fully human like you are. Lead us into the fullness of our humanity. If the fullness of Jesus' humanity is an example to us, his work is the same. The victory of the cross has fixed and is fixing and will fix the world and everything wrong with it. If you want to labor for the life of the world, that work begins at the foot of the cross. Be still and know him. and He will show you what to do. Keep glancing at Christ. Sit at his feet. Attend to him. Know him. Anoint him with your most precious gift. That's not a helpless or a frivolous gesture. It is the most human thing that you can do. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.